The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host. Today is Thursday, so of course it's time for the weekly visit of my good friend, excellent researcher, Dr Peter Hammond. I'm going to bring him up right now. Peter, are you with me? Yes, I am. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And uh, again, folks, Peter has got a very interesting topic uh, for us today, and it is the real story of the Armenian Genocide. So where would you like to start us off today with this topic, Peter? Most people probably don't even know about the Armenian Genocide, let alone of the Assyrian and Greek Christians, which took place at the same time in 1915 through to 1922. Uh, Even less people would probably be aware of why it took place. And what's intriguing is that this is very current right now because the Christians in Armenia, the country of Armenia, which is a very, very small part. There was a time when what today is called Turkey was mostly Armenia. Armenia is one of the oldest countries in the world, and it's one of the first countries in history to have converted to Christianity. By the second century, Armenia was an officially Christian kingdom, uh, making it one of the oldest Christian nations in, in the world. And the Armenians... Uh, for most people to try and place where's Armenia. Well, the country of Armenia is one of the independent republics that broke away from the Soviet Union in 1991. So Armenia is in the Caucasian mountains between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And uh, in fact, the Caucasian mountains is where the term Caucasian comes from, because the 10 northern tribes of Israel, which were expelled by the Assyrians when they conquered uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, Samaria, uh, and they expelled them. They were expelled to the Caucasian mountains and from there migrated across what today would be Ukraine into uh, Western Europe and, uh, uh, of course, became many of the nations of Western Europe and Great Britain and so on. Uh, but that's something else. So that's why we called Caucasians, because the Caucasian Mountains. What's also significant about Armenia is in the Caucasian Mountains, uh, which include uh, Armenia, uh, is the mountains of Ararat on which Noah's Ark settled. So it's it's a very interesting, uh, central, important country in so many different ways. Well, the 24th of April traditionally is marked by Armenians worldwide as uh, the day that they remember the 
genocide, which was unleashed on them back in 1915 uh, under the auspices of the Ottoman Turkish Empire. Now, uh, the word genocide is actually a word that was coined by the Armenians to describe the systematic extermination of Christians uh, in uh, what today we call Turkey within the Ottoman Empire. And so uh, the the whole concept of genocide is, is attached to the slaughter, the targeting of Christians in the Turkish Empire. And interesting that today many people seem to think that uh, uh, we have no right to use the word, it's somehow copyrighted uh, to other people who've hijacked it, and Hollywood seems to uh, act like that too. So, uh, you know, when Christians get targeted and exterminated, that's obviously not important in the eyes of the secular humanist, lamestream media, and the Hollywood indoctrination industry and all of the rest of it. But uh, what are we uh, remembering? Uh, back in April of 1915, uh, on the 24th of April, an order was given for the arrest of 250 Christian leaders in Constantinople. These were the most prominent leaders. Uh, these were uh, top economic and um, uh, not just business leaders, but uh, intellectuals, professors, pastors. And uh, this was the beginning. And then another 800 Christian leaders throughout the empire were uh, arrested. And before the year was out, more than a million Christians had been slaughtered. And within the next couple of years, more than one and a half million Armenian Christians were slaughtered. Additionally, 750,000 Assyrian Christians and 950,000 Greek Orthodox Christians were murdered just between 1915 and 1922 in what had been the Ottoman Turkish Empire. And that amounts to over three and a half million Christian victims of the Turkish Empire in just under seven years. Now, th there's an enormous amount that most people don't know about uh, today. And uh, it's, it's an extraordinary thing that right now we have got a war of extermination against Christians in Armenia being waged by Azerbaijan. And uh, Azerbaijan has been waging war against Nagano-Karabakh, uh, which is uh, a salient of Armenia, uh, which is surrounded almost entirely by Azerbaijan, and they've been bombing, attacking, slaughtering, persecuting, massacring Christians in Nagano-Karabakh since 1991. It's been an ongoing war, and this war re-erupted again last year in, in 2020. And naturally, Turkey is supporting very actively, enthusiastically, Azerbaijan, which is another one of these republics that broke away from the Soviet Union in 1991. And Azerbaijan's a Muslim-majority population. And what makes them particularly significant is the Baku oil fields. And uh, more about that and the Rothschilds and uh, the oil pipelines later. But uh, right now, we have got a attempted war to wipe out the small remnant of Armenians who've survived and the only reason they survived is because they weren't part of the Ottoman Turkish Empire. They were under what then was the Russian Empire, which later became the Soviet Union. And so the Armenian Christians are a small remnant of what was a massive, massive kingdom at one time, uh, dominating, if you uh, look up some of the maps uh, of, of original Armenia, Armenia was, was colossal. It was uh, something like two thirds of what today would be called Turkey was an uh, independent kingdom of Armenia. So, uh, right now they're being targeted. And what's extraordinary is in this war, not only is Turkey waging a war uh, against Armenia through their ally Azerbaijan, 
But incredibly, according to Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, last year, the state of Israel provided two-thirds of all armaments imported into Azerbaijan throughout 2020. And so uh, this is quite extraordinary that you've got Turkey and Israel working together, financing, arming, equipping the Azerbaijani government, who's engaged in attempted genocide and uh, wholesale massacres of Christians in the Ghana, Karabakh, and Armenia, which is all taking place in the Caspian, uh, between the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea and the Caucasian Mountains. And yet most people don't know about it, and I don't think most Christians or churches are even praying for our Christian brethren in uh, Armenia. But uh, back to the Armenian genocide, which most people are not even aware of, even though it was uh, the very event that led to the coining of the term genocide. And what, where it all really starts is the Ottoman Empire was pretty corrupt and degenerate from the beginning. And when Sultan Murad III died in 1595, for example, his son Muhammad had his 19 brothers murdered to prevent them from claiming the throne. And he had seven of his father's pregnant concubines sewn into sacks and thrown to the river. Many of his nephews incarcerated in the cage. He threw the grand vizar into a cistern. And one morning after an orgy, Ibrahim decided to have all 300 women of his harem put into sacks and thrown to the Bosphorus uh, to drown. And only one survived by being picked up by a ship bound for France. And uh, related the story. When Ibrahim was finally assassinated, the Ottoman Empire was torn apart by more corruption, nepotism, inefficiency, misrule, and power struggles. And the Ottoman Empire uh, was one of the greatest threats to Europe through the centuries. In the early 19th century, after the Ottoman Empire suffered defeats at the hands of Russia and Austria, and as the Greeks and Serbs were mounting successful wars of national liberation, Sultan Mohammed II decided to massacre all the Janissaries, now, Janissaries were soldiers forcefully recruited from Christian families. They're called the blood levy. Every family had to provide a son to fight for the sultan of the Ottoman Empire, and they were called Janissaries. So they were totally expendable because they weren't from Muslim families. They were from Christian families. And the reforms and westernization of state institutions was accompanied by escalating persecution of Christians. The more they adopted Western-style constitutions from 1839 on to placate European powers, the more anti-Christian persecution increased. And there's a reason for this. The last century of Ottoman rule witnessed the most thorough, complete destruction of Christian communities throughout the Middle East, throughout Asia Minor, throughout the Caucasian Mountains and the Balkans. In 1822, the entire population of the island of Chios, tens of thousands of people, were massacred or enslaved. In 1823, 8,750 Christians were slaughtered by the Turks at Misalnagoni, and thousands of Assyrian Christians were murdered in the province of Mosul in 1850. It was such atrocities as these that led to the Russians demanding the right to protect the holy places, which were under orthodox supervision in the Middle East. And so with the accession to power in France of Napoleon III, in 1852, he sought to provoke an international crisis by demanding that the Turks place the holy places in the Middle East under the power of the Roman Catholic Church rather than under Russian Orthodox, as they were at that stage being protected. Napoleon III's new French regime was completely secular. 
So this was a very cynical and manipulative diplomatic move designed to provoke a war with Russia because it's not like Napoleon III cared about any churches or Christians, let alone the Middle East. And so uh, him claiming that he wanted to protect the churches and all that was completely um, spurious and uh, a cynical move, as, as will be seen. So Napoleon III's France assumed the role of Catholic crusader, but in this case, bizarrely, in aid of the Islamic Crescent rather than in aid of Christians. And so effectively, Napoleon III's France supported the bloodstained, despotic, corrupt Ottoman Turkish Empire. And this move led to soaking the continent in even more blood, the Crimean War, in which another 800,000 people died. Far more serious than actual loss in lives and limbs in that hideous war, the Crimean War, was that the British and French actions in the Crimean War actually extended the worthless existence of Turkish tyranny, who thereafter targeted the Christians who had previously been under the protection of Tsarist Russia. And with greater ferocity, Christians were now targeted now that France and Britain had stepped in to protect the Ottoman Turkish Empire from being intimidated by Russia, even though Russia was trying to prevent Turkey from murdering Christians in the Middle East, most of which Christians were Orthodox Christians, of course, which Russia was uh, more aligned with. So systematically, Russia had been working to free Christians from Ottoman Turkish control. The Russians had liberated the Balkans, what today uh, would be Bulgaria and Serbia. Uh, all of these areas had been under the Turks for centuries, and it's the Russians who had liberated them. And Austria had liberated other parts of, of the Balkans, of course. Uh, and uh, so we saw the Turks were being forced back out of Europe uh, by Russian and Austrian actions. And now Britain and France come to save the Ottoman Empire when it was tottering on its last legs and about to collapse and extended its worthless life. And so Russia extended Christian civilization across the whole of North Asia to the Pacific Ocean. And there they were pushing southward in a civilizing mission and they sought to liberate more and more places from Islam. And of course, the Crimea was one of those places they liberated in the 1700s already uh, from Turkish rule. And they had the goal to liberate even the holy place of Palestine, which were then controlled by the Muslim Turks. If it had not been for the untimely intervention of Great Britain and France in the Crimean War, the, the Russians would have undoubtedly overrun the entire rotten, corrupt, crumbling edifice of the Turkish Empire and established Orthodox Christianity throughout the Middle East, which would have been an improvement on what happened in the last century. However, Britain dreaded the establishment of a Russian superpower stretching from the Arctic to the Indian Ocean. So to prevent Russia gaining ice-free ports for its navy, Britain became the protector and guarantor of the blood-stained Ottoman Turkish Empire. Turkey had been the greatest threat to the freedom of Europe throughout the centuries. The Turks had twice besieged Vienna in the very heart of Europe, 1526 and 1683. They had sacked Budapest, taking hundreds of thousands of Christians into Islamic slavery from the very heart of Europe. In 1860, over 12,000 Christians were slaughtered in Lebanon. In 1876, 14,700 Bulgarians were murdered by the Turks. At the town of Batara, over 7,000 inhabitants, 5,000 of them Christians, they were put to death. But reports of these and other routine atrocities by the Ottoman Turks were generally suppressed by the British government of Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli for political reasons. He saw it as more important to block Christian Russia's naval ambitions 
to secure an ice-free port by promoting an alliance of convenience with Muslim Turkey, with the Ottoman Empire. So 160-odd years ago, Western European powers interfered in the policies of Russia, invaded the Crimea, and as a result, strengthened the hand of radical Islam. And instead of supporting civilization and advancing freedom, the Western powers' intervention in Crimea in the 1856, 1854 to 1856 Crimean War actually undermined freedom, actually retarded civilization, and unintentionally, I presume, led to even worse massacres of Christians in the extended life granted to the tyrannical Ottoman Empire. Now, Gladstone opposed the Turkophile policies, as he called them, of Disraeli, the British Prime Minister, in these words, Disraeli is not such a Turk as I thought. What he hates is Christian liberty and reconstruction. And what Gladstone observed 140-odd years ago could easily be applied to the foreign policies of many Christian Western governments today. The Islamophilia, the love of Islam in the West, is not so much the love of the Turk, but a hatred of Christianity. Serg Trifovic wrote in The Sword and the Prophet, the Western powers, the heirs of those who had looted Constantinople in the Crusades, who had refused help when the Turks were breaking through the walls of Constantinople with a cannon built by Hungarian Catholic, who forced the last emperors of the Holy of the Byzantine Empire to forswear the Orthodox faith at the Council of France as the price of Western help. That never came. Those same Western powers, and Great Britain in particular, actually supported the Turkish subjugation of Christian Europeans on the grounds that the Mohammedan Empire was a stabilizing force and a counterweight against Austria and Russia. The scandalous alliance with Turkey against Russia in the Crimean War reflected a pernicious frame of mind that has manifested itself more recently in the covert, overt, and de facto support of Western powers for the Muslim side in Bosnia, Kosovo, Macedonia, Chechnya, Cyprus, Sudan, East Timor, Kashmir. So this Holocaust of Christians in the Ottoman Turkish empires, really the forgotten Holocaust or the hidden Holocaust, the Turks slaughtered over 200,000 Armenian Christians in Bayezid in 1877, in Ashgurd in 1879, in Sashush in 1894, in Constantinople in 1896, in Adana in 1909, in Armenia 1895 to 1896. And in 1915, the Turks massacred over one and a half million Christians, most of them Armenians, in the most extensive extermination of Christians ever launched up to that point. Passage to Ararat describes how along the road to Adana, Turkish women were given daggers to stab dying Armenians in order to gain credits in the eyes of Allah of having killed a Christian. In 1881, the Turks slaughtered the Christians in Alexandria. In 1915 to 1916, over 100,000 Maronite Christians in Lebanon and Syria were murdered. It's no wonder that the British Prime Minister Gladstone described the Turks as they were, upon the whole, from the black day when they first entered Europe, the one great anti-human specimen of humanity. Wherever they went, a broad line of blood marked their track behind them, and as far as their dominion reached, civilization disappeared from view. They represented everywhere government by force as opposed to government by law. But even as the Ottoman Empire crumbled and was replaced by the new empire of uh, the, the 
new republic of Turkey under Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, the ancient city of Smyrna with its 300,000 Christian population was destroyed. Now Smyrna is one of the churches in the seven uh, letters to the churches in, in Revelation. It was uh, one of the, uh, Smyrna was in fact where uh, the apostle John uh, ministered and where Polycarp ministered, a, a great Christian city with a tremendous Christian heritage going back 19 centuries. Well, Smyrna was destroyed in 1922 by Ataturk. The burning of Smyrna and the massacre of its Christian population marked the end of Greek civilization in Asia Minor. On the eve of its destruction, Smyrna was a bustling port, a vibrant commercial center, and the sea point promenade was a popular tourist destination. Well, on the 9th of September, 1922, the Turkish mob, organized and mobilized by the Turkish army under the command of Mustafa Kemal, attacked the Greek Orthodox metropolitan Chrysostomos, and the mob ripped out his eyes, dragged him by the beard, dragged him bleeding through the streets, beating and kicking him, and every now and then when he had strength to do it, he'd raise his right hand and bless his persecutors, repeating, Father, forgive them. Well, one Turk became so infuriated that he cut off the metropolitan's hand with a sword. Father Chrysostomos was hacked to pieces by the angry mob, and then on the 13th of September, they began to burn the city of Smyrna. The inhabitants were trapped between the flames on the one side and the Turkish bayonets of Ataturk on the other. On the 13th of September, 1922, the Turks burned the last city, the last Christian city in Asia, Smyrna, to the ground. Incredibly, British, American, Italian and French warships anchored in Smyrna's harbor were ordered to maintain neutrality. They were witnessing the massacres of the last Christian outpost in Asia, 1922, September 13th. Here's some of the eyewitness descriptions. The pitiful throng huddled together, sometimes screaming for help, but mostly waiting in silent panic beyond hope, did not budge for days. Typhoid reduced their numbers, but there was no way to dispose of the dead. Occasionally, a person would swim out from the dock to one of the anchored ships and try to climb the ropes and ch chains, only to be driven off. On the American battleships, the musicians on board were ordered to play as loudly as they could to drown out the screams of the pleading swimmers. The English poured boiling water down on the unfortunate Armenian Christians who reached their vessels. The harbor was so clogged with corpses that the officers of the foreign battleships were often late to their dinner appointments because bodies would get entangled in the propellers of their launches. A cluster of women's head bound together like coconuts by their long hair floated down the river towards the harbor. And this is all a quote from eyewitnesses who were on the warships who were ordered to do nothing. This was the end of Christianity in Turkey. As Trifkovic observes, at the very time that Europe achieved its military and geopolitical advantage, the moral and religious decline of Europe that culminated in the autogenocides of 1914 and 1939 had become evident, having found in their grasp places the crusader predecessors had only dreamed of reclaiming Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, effete and demoralized European governments made no effort to re-Christianize them and within a few decades neatly abandoned them. The moral disarmament of contemporary post-Christian Europe is now nearly universal. After World War I, with the installation of nominally pro-Western governments and many Muslim countries fashioned out the wreckage of the Ottoman Empire, the West seemed to have convinced itself of the existence of benign Islam. 
entire Christian communities were obliterated in the Middle East, the Nestorians, the Chaldeans, and other Christian communities which had survived for the previous millennium and a half were virtually wiped out. As late as 6th September 1955, Istanbul's Christians suffered what one reporter called the worst race riot in Europe, when in seven hours, mobs destroyed and looted over 4,000 homes of Christians, 1,000 businesses, 73 churches, three monasteries, 23 schools, 110 hotels, 27 pharmacies, causing over 100 million pounds worth of damage to properties belonging to Christians. That's 100 million pounds, 1955 money. It's no wonder that William Muir, one of the greatest Orientalists of all time, concluded at the end of his long and distinguished career, the sword of Muhammad and the Quran are the most fatal enemies of civilization, liberty and truth, which the world has yet known, an unmitigated cultural disaster, parading as God's will. Well, the persecution of Christians by Muslims and the genocide in Turkey have become forbidden subjects in Western circles. 14 centuries of religious discrimination and persecution causing the suffering, oppression, enslavement, and murder of over 270 million people have been buried under a thick whitewash of myths of Islamic tolerance. And the deceit, the cowardice, and the science by all too many Western journalists and academics continues to facilitate the religious discrimination and the persecution by radical Islam to this day. And the intellectual dishonesty of those Westerners who engage in academic gymnastics to justify the invasion of other people's lands, the looting, pillaging, raping, murdering, and enslaving of whole peoples needs to be exposed. And the hypocrisy of those who justify the military expansion of Muslims, but condemn those who inflicted defeats upon these invaders needs to be challenged. The fiction that jihad has never been an aggressive, but only a defensive concept should be dismissed with a contempt that such deception deserves. When Islam defines a refusal to submit to Sharia law under Islam as aggression, and when they define peace as submission to Islam, then we must know we're not talking the same language. One person described it like this, jihad seeks to conquer our souls. They seek the disappearance of our freedoms and civilization. They seek to annihilate a way of living and dying, a way of praying or not praying, a way of eating and drinking and dressing and entertaining and informing ourselves we do not understand, or we don't want to understand, that if we do not oppose them, if we do not defend ourselves, if we do not fight, jihad will win. And it will destroy the world that was, for better or worse, what we managed to build. It will destroy our culture, our art, our sciences, our morals, our values, and our pleasures. And in John 8.32, our Lord Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But I'm afraid most people today don't know the truth, wouldn't recognize the truth if they tripped over it, or are afraid of speaking the truth because it's politically incorrect. It's vital that we learn the lessons of history, that we stand up for religious liberty, that we speak out for freedom of conscience, that we expose the enemies of liberty, that we fight the good fight of faith. All the darkness cannot put out the smallest light. We need to understand Islam. We need to evangelize Muslims. We need to remember the persecuted. Our Lord said, remember the prisoners as if chained to them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves in the body also. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote, if we do not know our own history, we will simply have to endure all the same sacrifices, mistakes, and absurdities all over again. And, you know, to this day, we have got an ongoing of this campaign. So, for example, the Armenian prime minister, 
Nikol Pashinyan uh, declared in October last year that Turkey has returned to the South Caucasus 100 years after the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire to continue the Armenian genocide, which is the ongoing war against Armenia uh, practiced through Azerbaijan right now. And these mercenaries and the Azerbaijan partners, amongst other ISIS-like behavior, tortured beyond recognition an intellectually disabled 58-year-old Armenian woman by hacking off her ears, hands, and feet before murdering her. Her family could only identify her by her clothes. One uh, Turkish person, a woman, uh, walking by on the roadside was asked, if you could get away with one thing, what would you do? This is just asking random people in the streets of Turkey. One woman replied on video, what would I do? I'd behead 20 Armenians. She looked directly at the camera and smiled while nodding her head. Now, this kind of genocidal hatred should not be too surprising, though, because Turkish public school textbooks to this day continue to demonize Armenian Christians. And those people who produce the media, who control the mass media, who continue to demonize Christians, who continue this confused divide and conquer, corrupt and conquer policy. So it is so important that one remembers, and in the country of, of Armenia, in the Caucasian mountains, there is a genocide monument to commemorate those millions of Christians who were murdered in 1915 to 1922. And uh, I don't think most people have even seen a picture of it or would recognize it if they saw it, because it's it's one of these forbidden taboo subjects for Borton, not allowed to discuss it. But uh, there's a group called the Genocide Education Project. And uh, they say more than a million Armenians perished as a result of execution, starvation, disease, physical abuse. A people who had lived in eastern Turkey for nearly 3,000 years and more than double the time that the invading Islamic Turks have occupied Anatolia which now is called Turkey, they lost the homeland and they were profoundly decimated in the first genocide of the 20th century. At the beginning of 1915, there were over 2 million Armenians living in Turkey. Today, there are not even 60,000 left, not even 60,000 of a previous population of 2 million. There's a more polite term that they use today called ethnic cleansing. Well, Armenians have been ethnically cleansed uh, from Turkey what used to be the Kingdom of Armenia. Despite the vast amount of evidence pointing to the historical reality of the Armenian genocide, the eyewitness accounts, the official archives, the photographic evidence, the reports of diplomats, the testimony of survivors, there is ongoing denial of the Armenian genocide by successive regimes in Turkey. And not only has Turkey repeatedly denied culpability for the Armenian genocide, it is continually uh, involved in reigniting it, most recently by helping the Azerbaijanis wage war on Armenia in the context of the Nagorno-Karabakh dispute, which has erupted into armed conflict uh, just towards the end of last year again, freshly. So why has Turkey returned to the South Caucasus 100 years after the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire to continue the Armenian genocide? And what we see right now is uh, all kinds of uh, jihadist groups being encouraged uh, by um, France, uh, by the policies of Britain, by the policies of the EU, continually the anti-Christian bias and the anti-Christian prejudice and the desire to create more, <clears throat> pardon me, 
the desire to create more animosity between Muslims and Christians is being ignited. And uh, when you look at all of this, it's intriguing uh, that um, a captured terrorist recently confessed he has promised a monthly $200 payment for fighting the kafurs or the Christians and an extra $100 for every kafur or infidel which he beheaded. And uh, this is, you know, fighting against the Christians in Armenia. And Armenian churches, which come under Azerbaijani control, are desecrated. And uh, when they come to the top of any church, they videotape and post on social media pictures of themselves standing on top of churches as they chop off the cross and triumphantly shouting Allah Akbar and uh, shelling and destroying uh, churches like Holy Savior, an iconic um, a cathedral in Armenia, uh, which was consecrated in 1988, damaged in 1920, um, and uh, rebuilt since. And they filmed themselves shelling this uh, cathedral and posting it on, on uh, social media. Uh, in March 29, 2021 report, um, there were three Armenian churches in the Ghana Karabakh vandalized or destroyed by Azerbaijani forces, and that's even though there was meant to be a ceasefire at that time. And they have video footage of themselves entering uh, these Christian places of worship, laughing, mocking, kicking, defacing Christian items inside it, including a fresco of the Lord's Supper. Turkey's flags have appeared on Azerbaijan servicemen's uniform, uh, showing Erdogan's government's involvement. And when approached, some of these uh, Muslim uh, people approached by journalists, um, have been told, now let's enter their church where I will perform namaz. Namaz is a reference to Muslim prayers where they go and pray inside a church and declare it now to be a mosque. And there's all kinds of statements. Here's one statement from Arman Tatyan, the president of Azerbaijan and his country's authorities have been implementing a policy of hatred, enmity, ethnic cleansing and genocide against Armenia. And citizens of Armenia and the Armenian people have been targeted for years. The Turkish authorities have done the same and openly encouraged this policy. And so uh, Azerbaijan's uh, president has said uh, that the younger generation has grown up with hatred towards the enemy, uh, by which he means Armenians. And he said this proudly in, in a positive statement. And hatred is often a precursor to genocide. And uh, the way how you will see on social media Turkish people in Azerbaijan ranting against how all Armenian Christians are dogs and should be slaughtered. What is an Armenian doing in my country? Either the state must expel them or we will kill them. Why do we let them live? We will slaughter them when the time comes. This is Turkish law. How can we, Ottoman grandchildren, how can we, the people of Turkey, have honor and dignity? Allah must cut off the heads of the Armenians in Turkey. It is dishonorable for anyone to meet and not kill an Armenian. If we're human, let us do this. Let us do this for Allah. Everyone listening, if you love Allah, please spread this video of me to everyone. And these are, are posts on social media. And much of this genocidal hatred is being fueled by the mass media uh, in Turkey. So as we think of what happened, and it's hideous. Uh, anyone who wants to see my video on the uh, Armenian genocide will see pictures of, for example, Christian women crucified, literally, in 1915. Uh, the Heads of Christians put on on uh, spikes, uh, literally uh, in, decapitated and put on poles. 
uh, Christian doctors being hung in the town square with all the people gathering of all ages uh, to rejoice in this. Well, a lot of people said, where does this come from? Why is there so much hatred between the Turks and the Christians? Because for centuries they, they lived together without animosity. What changed? Well, in 1929, a book was published, Inner Folds of the Ottoman Revolution. And this was written by Mevlin Zedek Rafat. And he's a pro-Sultan Turk. He claimed that the Armenian genocide was decided in August 1910 and by a young Turk committee composed entirely of displaced Balkan Jews in the form of a syncretistic Jewish-Muslim sect, which included these people, Talat, Enver, uh, Bayhadir Shakir, Jamal, and Nizam, who all posed as Muslims, but they met in a Rothschild-funded Grand Orient Hotel of Salonika. Now, they were all Freemasons, and as the, the Freemasons started the Revolution France, uh, the uh, uh, 1879 uh, cry of liberty, fraternity, equality, so the young Turks used the same slogan for their revolution that they launched in 1908, liberty, equality, fraternity. And he documents how these were all Freemasons, these were all Jewish, and these were all uh, uh, in a Jewish-Muslim sect, which uh, brought the two together, and they had an agenda. So a 1994 conference paper by Joseph Bruder of the Schiller Institute entitled Palmerson Launches Young Turks to Permanently Control the Middle East. And he claimed that the founder of the Young Turks was uh, a Jewish person by the name of Emmanuel Cassero, C-A-R-A-S-S-O, Cassero. Cassero set up the Young Turk secret society in 1890s in Salonika, which then was part of Turkey, now it's part of Greece. Carasso was a grandmaster of an Italian Masonic lodge, which was called Macedonia Resurrected. This lodge was the headquarters of the Young Turks, and all the top Young Turk leadership were members. So all the Young Turks were Freemasons, and the vast majority of them Jewish Freemasons. Now, Mr. Bruder writes that Crasso played the leading role. He met with the Sultan to tell him he was overthrown. He was in charge of putting the Sultan under house arrest. It was Carasso who ran the Young Turk Intelligence Network in the Balkans. And he was in charge of all the food supplies for the entire empire during World War I. And so it's, the goal was to bring down the Turkish Empire to enable the Western powers to divide up the uh, old Turkish Empire between France and Britain, which of course was done, uh, which of course enabled a whole lot of the oil riches that were in the Ottoman Turkish Empire to be exploited by the Rothschilds. And so he writes, another important area was the printing press. While in power, the Young Turks ran the newspapers, including the Young Turk, whose editor was none other than the Russian Zionist leader, Vladimir Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky. And Jabotinsky had been educated in Italy. And uh, if you go to the archives of the Scottish Rite headquarters in Washington, D.C., you can find that most of the Young Turk leaders were actually officials in the Scottish Rite of the Freemasons. By 1916, the British and French already had a secret agreement to divide up the Ottoman Empire between themselves. And the Turks realized too late that it was their Sultan's refusal to grant Palestine to the Zionists as a homeland which had cost them their centuries old empire, and that they had whipped up through the Young Turks a revolution that not only overthrew the centuries old Ottoman Empire, but 
had dismantled them to the advantage of the oil powers. Uh, so less than 10,000 Jews and um, 200,000 Armenian and Greek Christians controlled all the finances and trade and arts of the empire. And so the Jews and the Christians were in strong competition. And the Christians were generally the, the winners because the sultans uh, preferred the Christians. And so the young Turks were there to get rid of the Christian competition and to ensure Zionist control over Turkey. Now, according to this article, uh, it's the, the Turks and the Israeli government have worked together often, just like right now, they are supplying most of the weapons. Between them, Israel provides two-thirds, and the other third comes from Turkey that supplies Azerbaijan, who's waging a genocidal war against the Christians of Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh. So here is another interesting source uh, written by Clifford Schack, the Armenian and Jewish Genocide of Pr Project, eliminating ethnic conflict along the oil route from Baku to the Suez Canal region. That's the title. He wrote, in the, 19, in the 1880s, the French branch of the Rothschild family acquired interest in Russia's Baku oil fields in an effort to supply their refinery on the Adriatic with cheap Russian oil. And of course, Baku is now in Azerbaijan. In exchange for their interests, they built a railroad linking Baku to the newly acquired Black Sea port of Batum. They opened up the Baku oil, a major world supply to the world. And with the success of the new railroad, the Rothschilds had more oil than they could actually sell. And they overcame their fear of competing with the giant standard oil of America by seeking out the huge Far East markets east of Suez. And so Mr. Schack makes his point that the decision by shrewd French Rothschild branch to diversify into other areas of oil exploitation was a calculated one, which required eliminating the Armenians, who were the major economic power in the Turkish Empire, eliminating them completely, getting rid of their people uh, in the whole area that the Baku oil fields would need to have their pipelines traveling from uh, through to the Suez Canal area. And so Mr. Shek observes that the elimination of the Armenian population of Baku was a small price to pay for peace in the region so crucial to the development and investment of the Far East Rothschild oil interest. It would be fair to say that the genocide of a group of a million or so to serve the benefit of a billion or so is far less a question of should it be done, of how can it be done. And so as not to reveal any plausible motive which would link the actual planners to the genocide, the scheme involved a proxy party, namely the Muslim Turks and Kurds and Azerbaijanis who were manipulated through layers of influence, providing sufficient cover for the planners. And uh, hence, the young Turks step into this. So that's just some of the why and the behind the scenes of the Armenian genocide. When you think of the devastation done to Christian civilization in its heartland, remember the, the gospel was planted in the Middle East. It started in the Middle East. And there was a time when Syria, Damascus, and Antioch, these were the, the uh, centers of Christian missionary effort for centuries. And when you think of the vast Christian influences for, for over a thousand years, what today we call Turkey was the Eastern Empire, the Byzantine Empire, the Christian Empire, and Greek civilization uh, predominating. And the vast influence of the Kingdom of Armenia as a powerful Christian empire since the second century, what we are seeing today is the ashes and ruins of millenniums of Christian civilization in the Middle East 
And the Western role being played in this, meaning by the French and British governments, uh, by the Rothschild Institutes, by the Young Turks, uh, all of these different groups, the, the links involving treachery of people who came from what you would have thought were Christian countries uh, in assisting in the anti-Christian genocide of Christian peoples like the Armenians and the Assyrians and the Greek Orthodox. It's, it's a crime that needs to be known. It needs to be exposed. It needs to be remembered out of honor and memory of the martyrs. But also we need to learn because as Jesus said, if they hate you, they hated me first. And uh, this is the thing. What we're dealing with is a very anti-Christian uh, conspiratorial force who are working continually to corrupt and conquer and to confuse, divide and conquer. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. I mean, all the information, all the dates and everything you got there, that was a fascinating presentation. Have you got any idea how long that took you to put together? Oh, um, been a several month project, yes. Uh, no, um, had to read quite a bit on this. Um, uh, of course, I have been studying this over the years in different points, but uh, this has been something I've been working on for several months right now, uh, building on what I've done several years ago. Thank you, Peter. And folks, this is why these shows are so important. It takes so much work uh, that Peter does, and of course, his knowledge goes back many, many years, to actually condense all of this into one show. And that's why we're so uh, grateful to have Peter on, because you can get these broad subjects and he has that ability to get the best bits out of there, make it interesting and condense it so it's the go-to uh, information on that topic. And it's very difficult to follow Peter on this, but I read a story that is um, interesting, and it's only a couple of days ago, 27th of April, from the Daily Mail. Pakistan PM Imran Khan urges the Muslim world to unite and use trade boycotts to force the West to pass blasphemy laws to protect the Prophet. And uh, basically he has said, or rather boasted, it says in this Daily Mail article, that his plan for Muslim-majority countries to unite and force Western governments to criminalise insulting the Prophet Muhammad will work. The 68-year-old leader said lobbying Western nations, the EU and the UN to adopt blasphemy laws with a warning of a trade boycott if they do not do so will be effective in achieving their goal. He said leaders of Muslim-majority countries should call on the West to stop hurting the feelings of Muslims across the world with their current freedom of speech laws, reports Pakistani newspaper Dawn. Khan said insulting Islam's prophet should be treated in the same way as questioning the Holocaust, which is a crime in some European countries. My way is to take heads of all Muslim countries into confidence, Khan said in an address on Monday. Together we should ask Europe, the European Union and the United Nations to stop hurting the feelings of 1.25 billion Muslims like they do in the case of Jews. I want the Muslim countries to devise a joint line of action over the blasphemy issue with a warning of a trade boycott of countries where such incidents will happen. This will be the most effective way to achieve the goal. I found that quite interesting, um, uh, Peter, because of course he's talking about the Jews, he's talking about the Holocaust, he's talking about uh, restricting people's rights to free speech, uh, and he wants it criminalised if anyone 
disputes or or takes to task some of the um, history of the Prophet Muhammad that you've well documented in your book, um, uh, Slavery, Terrorism and Islam, uh, where you reveal a lot of things about the Prophet Muhammad. And as a result, you had all sorts of death threats sent to you. So what are your thoughts on this? Yes, it's, it's very interesting because I think the average Muslim would be horrified when he realizes how the average Muslim is being used and abused by people with a very nefarious agenda. And, uh, you know, to me, there, there's no doubt that uh, that uh, Muhammad's a false prophet. Uh, but many Muslims could be our friends and neighbors, but they are being continually agitated uh, to uh, terrorism or rioting or um, uh, intimidating. And isn't it interesting that the only two group of people that you're not allowed to ever criticize are uh, Jews and Muslims. So it, it comes down to anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, the two unforgivable sins out there. And they're being used to intimidate. Many times you think that that the, the Jews and the Muslims are enemies. And in, on one level, the people on the ground are. But when you go to the higher level and you see, but wait a minute, why is Turkey and the state of Israel both providing the weapons to Azerbaijan to fight Christians in Armenia? And here comes out some intriguing things that, that come out from, for example, Mr. Bruder's research, that he says that uh, Kemal Ataturk uh, had Jewish origins, and he, he definitely had uh, Jewish um, affiliations, and he is the founder of the modern secular uh, state or republic of Turkey, which overthrew the Ottoman Empire. Now, when the Ottoman Empire would not uh, give in to the Jewish Zionist demand of giving them their homeland, uh, which was, of course, at that stage under the control of the Ottoman Empire. Um, that's when they worked to overthrow the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire, which had stood for centuries, and enter the Young Turks. Well, at least two of the presidents of modern Turkey, Anono, uh, Anonu and Bayar, were Jewish. And so, interesting that you have crypto-Jews moving in to take control over Muslim countries like Turkey, turn them into secular countries, but um, breaking down uh, especially any threats that they've perceived, including the Christians like the Armenians and the Syrians, uh, the Chaldeans, the Mannerites and uh, uh, the uh, Chaldean Christians, all targeted that were under the Ottoman Empire, who had survived for centuries, uh, over a millennium indeed, and, and suddenly annihilated in the 20th century. And uh, one wonders what was behind it. Well, apparently... Uh, there are these real anti-Christian uh, elements uh, within the Jewish communities who are Freemasons, who have got a New World Order agenda, who have managed to hijack Islamic movements and media, such as they've done Turkey, and even countries, as, as was done by Kemal Ataturk. If the average Muslim knew the Jewish banker agenda, such as the Rothschilds, Baku oil fields, um, uh, uh, being behind uh, the Armenian genocide. I'm sure many Muslims are horrified over some of the atrocities that have been committed and, and even embarrassed uh, that such things could have been done in the name of Islam. But if they were to realize that they are being used and they're being abused and they're being manipulated by powerful financial interests like the Rothschilds and by secret societies uh, like the Freemasons, I think we would find Christians uh, and Muslims would be standing together opposing a common enemy. Uh, one wonders how much of this confused divide and conquer strategy has been used. You know, divide 
uh, and conquer. That kind of attitude has been used a lot by our enemies. And um, we will find some common cause with many of the normal on the ground, one of my own business Muslims, uh, when they realize just how much they have been abused and they have been disgraced uh, by such uh, conspiratorial, conniving, uh, evil uh, working, such as what the Young Turks set in motion in Turkey back in 1915. Uh, back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And we can't forget as well that it was the uh, Jews in Spain that opened the gates to the Muslim Moors, uh, a very famous uh, uh, story there that they try and hush up today. So, you know, these alliances between the two groups go back hundreds of years. So we're uh, pretty much out of time. But before we go, Peter, can you please let people where they can find your work and how they can get in touch with you? Yes, I can notice that in my book, Slavery, Terrorism, Islam, I point out that Jerusalem was actually betrayed uh, to the Muslims by the Jews. They they uh, betrayed and handed over the area, which was at that stage under Byzantine Empire, and they opened the gates of the city. And so uh, it didn't help them, of course. <laughs> There's a, a lot of uh, treachery that goes on that's repaid by further treachery. Uh, so you can contact me through a mission at frontline.org.za is the email mission at frontline.org.za. Our website is www.frontlinemissionsa.org. Frontlinemissionsa.org is our website. We're on social media as well. And you'll find me, Peter Hammond, and uh, our Mission Frontline Fellowship on uh, Facebook. And if anyone wants to contact me personally, that's peter at frontline.org.za. Thank you so much, Peter. Absolutely fascinating information as always. Uh, folks, you have been listening to the real story of the Armenian genocide. Peter and I will be back with you at the same time next week. I will, of course, be back with you tomorrow. And until then, folks, I hope you have a wonderful day. And bye for now.